Good morning. Welcome to worship here on, it's I believe September the 27th here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. I'm so happy to see all of you here. A um, couple reminders of things coming up, announcements in here. Uh, the uh, this coming Tuesday is the deadline. If you have anything you wanted to be put into the, the newsletter, have it in on Tuesday for Becky. Um, Acme is doing their community uh, cashback program, so keep your eyes out if you, when you're shopping there. We are going to have our bread and cup communion on October the 4th. Um, sorry, this just if I read the announcements, it's October, October the 4th, but it makes sense. Anyway, uh, we, we are working with the deacons. Um, we are going to continue to do this in a safe way, but we are also figuring out how we can have our, our bread the way we normally have our bread, something more like that for the, this coming fall one. Um, a special thank you from the family of Doran and the family of Karen for everyone who's been reaching out, remembering them. Thank you so much to this church family who continues to hold its members close. One other announcement. Um, this coming Saturday, we will be together here celebrating the life of our sister, Jean. Uh, calling hours are going to be 10 to 12, the funeral at 12 o'clock, and immediately followed by um, the internment across the road. All are welcome, and I have been told to ask that as you're coming to this time to Think of those many stories that are out there of how Jean has impacted your life. Both the ones where she really has done a lot, because we know that, but also the funny ones, the fun ones that we can't help but remember and smile, because Jean has been such an important member to all of you. And a thank you from the family for all the prayers, all the reaching out that you have done. It has meant so much as they've walked with Jean in these final days. Are there any other joys or concerns you wish to share today? What was the first name again? Colleen. Colleen. Prayers for Colleen, who is in her caregiver as she's dealing with dementia. Well, if you will please join with us in prayer then.
if you'll pray with me. God, we come together to worship you together in this space. We come together as we watch the world turn colors, as the green turns into reds and yellows and oranges and purples and browns, reminding us that even as the seasons change towards colder and harder times, that there's great beauty in it. We come to you with many heavy hearts. The loss of loved ones so close to us. Those who were part of our lives for many years. We thank you for them. We thank you for the time we've had together with them. And we ask that as the seasons change, we'll be able to fully appreciate all the beauty they've brought into our lives. We lift up our brothers and our sisters who are struggling in illness, in difficulties. We lift up Colleen as she struggles with dementia and all that it entails. We ask that we continue to feel your presence. We ask for your safety in our travels, for our safety in our walk every day. We lift all these things up to you, Lord God, and those things that we still hold quietly in our hearts. Amen. Our reading today comes from Leviticus, chapter 16, I'll be reading 29 through 34, and this is the New American Standard Bible's version. This shall be a permanent statue for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statue. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as the priest in his father's place shall take atonement, make atonement. He shall... Thus put on the linen garments and the holy garments and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. 
He shall also make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. Now you all shall have this as a permanent statue to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all of their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Thanks be the word of God. There once was this young man, the son of a gentleman who lived of some comfort. This young man, as he grew, he wanted to go out, to explore the world, to make his own way, to make his own decisions, his own triumphs and mistakes. So he went to his dad and told him, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to make my own way in the world. His father was thrilled, a little sad, of course. I mean, that's how you feel when your child is ready to go out and make their own life, thrilled and sad. But then he became a little more sad, perhaps even a little more upset, when the son said, well, I'm going to need funding to do so. So whatever you are going to put for me in the will, I want you to go ahead and do that now. Stunned, the son received what he asked of his father, about a third of the estate. And swallowing his pain and sadness, the father sent his son out into the world. The young man traveled to a far-off place, that kind of place that when he was young, if he had had a poster on the wall, it would have been there in big print letters over top of it that dream place, that paradise that he wanted to go to someday. Well, he went there then. And he lived there with experiencing all the pleasures, all the luxury that he could find, that he could partake in. But this kind of living is unsustainable. I mean, either your body gives out from the punishment or your heart tires out from realizing that these things are, well, dust. They don't really fill you. And so you go looking for something better. Or as in the case of this young man, the finances ran out. So he went looking for work and he found it, but it was extremely degrading. I mean, it barely paid enough for his daily bread. And if anyone from his hometown had seen him, they would turn away because it was that bad of a job. It was a terrible job. It made him untouchable, a lost cause. The young man realized how far he had fallen, that even his father's employees, the ones he once looked down on, lived better lives than he did. So he decided, maybe I should go live as one of them. So he left this place that he once thought as paradise, and he traveled back home with the hope of becoming an employee. As he traveled, he practiced what he would tell his dad. He would say, I am sorry. I have been cruel towards you. I have lived a life that was shameful to everything you have ever taught me. Would you forgive me and allow me to work any kind of work, even the most menial, most degrading task I'm happy to do? We all know what happens. 
As I've told the story, I'm sure you're recognizing it. The father spots the shamed son from a distance, runs to him, brushes aside the apology, and celebrates that his son, his extravagantly wasteful child, has returned. The one we all call the prodigal son. This is a beloved parable in Luke. It's held up to remind us of how almost nothing, not even our misbehavior, can separate us from the love of God and being welcomed back with open arms into the house of God. I have to say almost nothing. And maybe this is me over-breaking down a parable, and that's always a danger with parables, is over-breaking them down. But it seems to me that he could have allowed his pride or his shame to get in the way. He could have said to himself, I can't possibly return. I have too shamed my father and my family. Or on the same one, I am too proud to go back and stand before them as a failure. He could have stayed away. He could have decided he was too unworthy. But he made that decision to return, to ask for forgiveness. It didn't even matter to the father whether the son was asking for forgiveness because he genuinely was sorry or if he was simply sorry that he was in the situation he was in. He accepts him back regardless. Past wrongdoings, mistakes, despite the fact that he came back for selfish reasons. Going to ask for forgiveness, though, is a hard thing. We all know this, whether you're asking forgiveness for someone who you see at home every day, for someone at work, even someone in a church or in your community at large. Asking for forgiveness, real forgiveness, isn't easy. I mean, let's just look at the word we use. When you ask for forgiveness, we use the word apologize. Apology isn't really actually a great way to put it. It comes from a Greek and Latin word, which means to defend for something, someone or something. It means you are defending your actions. We come seeking forgiveness while holding a shield between us and the one we are approaching. That makes a lot of sense, actually, if you think about the word forgiveness, which means to give up the desire or to give up the power to punish someone. Okay, it's a lot of semantics, diving into words that we don't necessarily use in that way. But I mean, let's just look at today. I mean, literally, today. If you were a Jew, you would be readying yourself for dusk this evening, because dusk this evening begins Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement, which we read today in Leviticus 16th chapter. Actually, to tell the story of the atonement, we got to jump back just a little bit to the 8th and the 10th chapter. The tabernacle has just been built. This is the first place anyone can worship God as a community. Before that, you would just build a shrine as you went, or you would worship God in your own little house or tent at this point. They're traveling. But now they have this beautiful tabernacle. And this is the place where God will reside on earth. Now, that's a dangerous thing. God is powerful. God is dangerous, especially in the Old Testament. 
You can't just approach him nilly-willy. So you have to have special people. And so Aaron is raised up and made the high priest. And he has four sons that are raised up and made the priest underneath him. Eleazar, who will become the next high priest. Ithamar, who will, well, he was actually in charge of building the tabernacle. And then his two oldest sons, Nabab, sorry, Nadab and Abihu. Not my strong language. They too will undergo all the consecrations that their father has gone under. They will be given special authority to enter into certain spaces. And they will be given the authority to perform certain rites. Now almost immediately after this tabernacle has been sanctified, has been purified, has been made ready for God, Nadab and Abihu pollute it. It's a little confusing, and this isn't my area of strength, so I couldn't explain exactly how this all works. But there are censers, metal containers. If you ever go to a Roman Catholic or a Orthodox um, service, you might even see them. They have censers even today, these metal containers where you would put hot coals and incense on top that would fill the area with the beautiful smell. There were rules about how you lit those, how you made them work. You would put hot coals from the sacred fire in the bottom and then the incense on top. Except Abihu and Nadab, for whatever reason, decide not to use the sacred fire, the holy fire that's used on the altars and other places in the tabernacle. But they use some other fire. The Bible says it's profane, but I don't know if that's just because it's not one of the sacred fires. So they light it with that. And by lighting the wrong with the long fire, God's fire burns them up, killing them. It's not exactly a pretty story. And then Leviticus takes the next five chapters to tell you about all the things that are good and clean and all the things that are unclean and how to make yourself go from unclean to clean. Which by the time we hit the beginning of the 16th chapter, you come to realize there's a bit of a problem. When those two men were punished, it kind of made the whole temple, the whole tabernacle unclean. So that means Aaron needs to re-clean it. And that's what verse that we read today was about him re-cleaning the temple and then he's told do this every year and it's not only going to cleanse the temple but all the sins of Israel now somehow this makes it to becoming a high holy day in the beginning it wasn't it seems to have been kind of a typical thing they did regularly it would be like you know today's mum Sunday if we made mum Sunday about as important as Easter. I'm not saying Mom Sunday isn't important, I'm just saying it's not quite Easter. We don't know how it got from there to there. One guess is, is it's all about the new year. In the beginning, as we read in Genesis, that those first days happen in the month of Nisan, which is around Passover time. So Passover in the spring was also a New Year celebration, which made sense. The Israel, nation of Israel was born that day when they were freed from Egypt. 
But by the time Jesus walks the earth, New Year falls in the fall. Most likely this is because Israel was conquered by a bunch of people, by, by the Babylonians, by the Persians, and they slowly adopted their New Year system, which fell in the autumn. And, sorry, they just celebrated that. That was the 18th and the 20th of this month. They call it Rosh, um, Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. And so this celebration of the cleansing of sins falling immediately after that also grew in prominence as that became the new year. I mean, what better way to start the year than to have no sins, to atone with God? That's a great way to start the year. I mean, we even do that a little bit in our calendar. We, we stuck our new year near this winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. Not quite on, but close to. And there's another new beginning there. The celebration of Jesus. The one who, instead of needing to sacrifice to cleanse the temple, the one who will make it so that we'll never need to sacrifice again. Passover, which celebrates the passing over of death that struck down the oppressors and liberated Israel, became Easter, which celebrates the defeat of death and liberates us into eternal life. But honestly, this just raises more questions than answers for me. I mean, we talk about this sin and death, sacrifice and resurrection, death, eternal life. What does it all mean? What is sin? What is atonement? Okay, part of the problem is it's me. I'm the kind of kid who liked to, and I never did this because I think my father would have had a conniption if I had done this in front of him, but I would have loved to take the face off the grandfather clock to see all the gears moving behind it. I remember playing with my friend David where we took hammers to the back of an old TV, breaking it open to see how the inside worked. Yeah, I guess we could have used screwdrivers, but hammers were more fun. I like to understand things. I like to look beneath things to kind of get a feel for how they work. I know I can't honestly know everything. I mean, who could know everything? But I like to have a basic understanding of how things work. And when you apply this to faith, we call that theology, which is one of my favorite subjects, because it creates systems out of faith, which sounds bad and good at the same time, because, well, it's nice to see how faith can work in concert, how each piece connects in with itself and forms a one continuous working together system of beliefs. Because let's face it, it gets hard to make them all work together. Yeah, there are some basic rules. I mean, don't kill your neighbor, don't commit adultery, don't worship things made by human hands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor and treat them as you wish to be treated. There are some basic rules for all Christianity. But if you wanna see what happens, when those rules are applied to the, real, to the real world, you discover it doesn't mean we all agree that they all are applied the same way. All you have to do is walk out here onto Albrecht. If you go up and down, I think I counted eight other churches on our road. It's hard. How do you apply this rule in this world? 
How do you apply that rule in that world? What are the limits? What are the exemptions? Before you know it, you end up with theology, you end up with Christianity that's a big old mess of congregations that can look extremely different from church to church. We may all be in here about the same time, give or take, except for the Seventh-day Adventist, but anyway. Um, but we might all be in here, but our worship will look a lot different than another church's. And we might even believe things that are quite different, maybe even contract, um, contradict each other. I can't claim to know the answer. I'm not so far gone to believe that I have the secret that everyone has been groping for for the last 2,000-some years. I don't think anyone does, and I firmly believe that those who have actually figured it out aren't aware of it themselves. Systematic theology is appealing because it tries to give some order to this, some order to the chaos. But it doesn't give me a great deal of solace. I mean, it's like one of those things I love to read and love to engage with, but doesn't mean that I'm actually any happier for it. I can't help myself. Because each theology has its problems. They either work against themselves at some point, where, you know, you always find those exceptions that prove the rules. Or they have their own good deal of hypocrisy when you compare them to what the Bible asks of them. Or they just come to conclusions I can't agree with. In the end, I'm left searching and building my own theology out of what I read from others, my own faith experience, the faith experience of this denomination, and of course, my own prayer and Bible. So I guess what I'm saying is at this point, I'm doing the best I can in understanding my faith and God, and I'm liable to change and evolve as my walk with the Lord continues. But I understand sin is separation. When we sin to God, we are separating ourselves from the will and the direction of the holy. When we sin to one another, we separate ourselves from being able to love one another the way God called us to love. I think it can even go further than that. We can sin in how we treat our communities. We can sin in how we treat animals and plants in the world that we were given to care. We cause rifts with one another. In the ancient times, God called the people to give up something of great worth to repair these chasms, to remind them of their dependence of God and God's protection and direction given to them, to remind them of the, that they are loved no matter what. It required you to work also to correct your sins. Yom Kippur means day of atonement, not day of apologies. The people are not called to give a defense of themselves, to say, God, this is why I sinned this year. I couldn't help myself. I just really wanted it. The people are called to atone, to reconcile, to work to change disharmony into harmony. They are told to lay down the shields and pick up the tools. We have Jesus. Jesus who directed us into the kingdom of heaven. We no longer have to give up animals. We no longer have to give up gold to erase our sins. Rather, we are to bring them directly to God and lay them at the Holy's feet and atone. To work to make the things that we have done wrong 
right. Jesus told his followers to seek out those who may hold grudges against them and to make them right. He told them to go approach their brothers and sisters who they have rifts with, with those chasms exist, and achieve harmony before going to seek God. Atonement takes time. Sin is a separation, a wound in the relationship. Atonement isn't the healing of the wound. That's forgiveness. Atonement is the stitches that binds the wound close and allows it to heal. And even then, the scars sometimes take time to fade. Thinking about the scar I have on my hand, they tell you, rule 101 in the kitchen, if a knife is dropping, drop, let it drop. I, I grabbed for it without thinking. It's still there. I kind of like it, to be honest. Scars are tattoos with better stories. Yom Kippur is not a panacea, a cure-all drug. The followers of God were still expected to come and offer sacrifices throughout the year to work and repair that relationship with God. Easter is also not a panacea. It shows the direct pathway to God's grace. But we, as individuals, are still expected to walk there, to lay down those sins that burden us. The father who waited for the prodigal son didn't care that what his son came back for. The grace was freely given. We don't know whether the son goes on to atone for what he had done, Actually, the next thing we know is the father spends more money on him to celebrate that he's back. But if we understand that he's returning to God, he's returning to God's house, the kingdom of heaven, then we understand that he's going on to try and live a life in accordance to what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven, to atone for those things that he had done wrong, to make them right. I only ever got stitches once that I'm aware of. I had surgery when I was four on my eye, and I don't think they put stitches in for that. I was playing a night game with a bunch of uh, youth kids, and I ran through the nursery. The castle wasn't very tall, only about as high as my knee, but that didn't stop me from, well, almost tearing off a pinky toe. <laughs> Didn't need the bone and everything was okay, but yeah, everything else is pretty torn up. So uh, standing in that tiny little restroom that seems to be in every little nursery with the tiny toilet and the tiny sink, bouncing up and down, thinking, ow, I really hurt my toe, until finally turning on the light and realizing that, well, I needed to go to the doctor. It's the only time I've ever had stitches. I'm thankful for that. But I would not have healed if it hadn't had the stitches, if I hadn't made the point to go visit the doctor and have them sew my toe back together. It would have been a lot worse for that. I could have, it could have gone infected, it could have fallen off, and thankfully it didn't. I still have all 10 toes. I'm doing better than my mom who has nine and a half thanks to a uh, lawnmower. That's kind of our, how we rank our toe level. 
I have a dark humor family. But you have to make the decision. You have to make the decision to go to the hospital and have the stitches put in. You have to make the decision to go to those that you have rifts with, that you have chasms with, and to repair that, to build bridges, to put in stitches, to pull the wound closed, to allow it to heal. I pray that you won't be afraid to do that. Because what I do remember is even though I had the painkiller in my toe at the time, I still feel the needle going through. It's not comfortable to make an atonement. It's not comfortable to say, I'm sorry. It's not comfortable to make things right. But in the end, you get to keep your toe. You get to keep that relationship. You get to make that right with God, with your neighbor, with your dog, with your cat, with the world. I pray that you will find atonement, and through atonement, you will find that the grace of God overflows even greater than you would have ever imagined. Thank you. As you go out this week, bathe in the grace of God. Bathe in the fact that you are forgiven. And be willing to seek out the forgiveness of those that you need to find. Be willing to make an atonement. Yom Kippur is something that our Jewish brothers and sisters celebrate every year that we don't quite have in our Christian calendar. But when you read Paul, when you read Jesus over and over again, they remind us that we need to make things right, that we need to make things right now. So I pray as you go out, you'll be able to do that. And as I said, Bathe in the grace of God, which is so freely given to everyone who seeks it. Amen.